0: In chapters eight through twenty, and we'll finish those up tonight in chapter twenty-one, and then he begins a new part in chapter twenty-two. That new part is looking toward the the regulations in regard to, to domestic and personal relationships. All that to say that Moses has a lot of ideas, a lot of things that he saw in his forty years of ministry with the people who failed, that he can encourage for this next generation to say, "Hey." Here's how you're going to make it. Here's how you're going to make it. Hear what God's word says and and don't just hear it. Make it a part of your life. Make it a part of how you're going to, to function day in and day out. And if you do that, everything's going to work out for you. Everything's going to come together. And so Moses, as he lays these things out for us, he begins in chapter 21. He says, Now if anyone is found slain lying in a field in a land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it will be that the elders of the city nearest the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not pulled with a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley flowing with water, which is neither ploughed nor sown, and they will break the heifer's neck there in the valley. The Lord lays out for us as we study the scripture that blood spoils the land. Blood spoils the land. We remember what we talked about it last week, way back in Genesis, when Cain killed Abel, the Lord said to Cain, Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And from that moment in Genesis, God institutes a, a corporal punishment that if man slays man by man, he will be slain. It's a foundation to government that God established in the in the book of Genesis that that the loss of life that life has has value to God. It matters to him. And it matters to him that somebody somewhere got away with killing somebody nobody knows anything about. So the Lord says, This is what you're going to do. And this is what I want you to understand in this that that man's blood spoils your land. In God's eyes, his blood is crying out for what? Justice. God says, In that, listen, I want you to go measure, find the closest city. So, they'd go find the closest city and bring the elders of that city. The elders of that city couldn't say, It's not my responsibility, it's not my problem, because it's everybody's problem. It's everybody's problem. And so, the elders of that city would come and they would bring with them a heifer. Now, this is not a sacrifice like a sin sacrifice that would be done on the altar, it's a judicial sacrifice and it's making a statement. It's making a statement, first off, that God cares about that life in the field that nobody seems to know anything about. And as the, as the elders would bring this heifer, as they would bring it, it says in verse 5, Then the priests, the sons of Levi, will come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him, and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault will be settled. And all the elders of that city, nearest the slain man, will wash their hands over the heifer, whose neck was broken and they will answer and say our hands have not shed this blood nor have our eyes seen it. And the whole thing even as the as the neck is broken of the heifer it, it symbolizes that the crime deserved capital punishment. There should have been something that was done about this crime, but even in that, then they would wash their hands over the heifer, which symbolized their innocence in the matter. We don't know anything about it. We don't know what happened. We don't know, there's nothing we can do about it. And so the priests, being there in that place, and them washing their hands over it, would acknowledge that the land was cleansed. It was clean. It was, they had done everything they could do they weren 't allowed just to say it 's not my problem they weren 't allowed to say it 's not in my city limits because everything that happened within Israel affected Israel, just like everything that happens in the United States affects the United States. How many unsolved murders are there a year? How many people die? Nobody cares about it, and people say it 's not my problem. but God says the blood cries out to him. He wants us to realize the sanctity of human life and that it matters to the Lord. It matters to the Lord that someone is watching out for them. It matters to the Lord that somebody cares about what's going on, about what's happening. Now he goes on and says in verse 8, So provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel, and atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. So you will put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. The whole ceremony, the whole ritual spoke to God We're willing to be obedient to what you're telling us. We're willing to recognize the sanctity of human life. We're willing to recognize that, that there should have been a price paid for whoever had done this thing. And then to acknowledge that it was God's ability to relieve them of guilt. And that, again, it mattered to him. And so as a nation, this was the practice. This is what they would do. This is how they would try to, or make an attempt to, Keep the land pure in the eyes of God by caring about the people. See, that's what government's job is. You understand that? From the moment that God instituted government, this was government's responsibility. To make sure that someone was watching out over what was taking place. That the, that the innocent were being protected. That the guilty were being charged. We see in our world it's not quite that way, is it? And we know, for a matter of fact, in the nation of Israel it wasn't quite that way either, was it? Otherwise Jesus would have had a fair trial and things might have ended differently. What do we discover about man? We discover that man has a desire for power. And when man achieves power, that power corrupts man. And he'll do whatever he can do to keep or hold on to that power. Retain power. We see it happen in the priesthood of Israel, don't we? The priesthood who were were to go before God. And and atone for the sins of man. yet, it's not very long when we go through the scriptures. Before we start seeing the high priest. Whose sons are, are all crazy. Running in a variety of different directions. Their hearts not even remotely close to the Lord. But. God lays this out so that we would say, hey, this is how I walk in the statute. This is how I love the Lord my God. I care about it. I care. I care about what happens to the innocent. I care about what happens to the guilty. I care about fulfilling those things. And so Moses is laying out for this new generation. you got to care about what's going to be happening to your neighbor. you got to care what's happening in the town down the road. you got to care what's happening in that empty field. So that people know, so that people are aware of the things that are happening. He goes on and says now in, in verse 10, And when you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire her and would take her for your wife, then you bring her home to your house, and she will shave her head, And trim her nails. And that ought to solve it. What you need to understand when we look at this is how radically different this is from the rest of the world at the time. The rest of the world, to the victor goes the spoils. You see a woman you want, take her. Take her right there. She's not a, a human being. She has no dignity. She has no value. She's conquered. Do what you want to. Throw her away when you're done. doesn't make any difference. That's how the rest of the world worked. But God told his people that's not how you're going to be. If you conquer a people, and this is not the Canaanites, by the way. The Lord had already said that it was, it was against uh, the law, against God's law for them to marry any Canaanite. But this, he says, of a city farther away. Somebody else, another city outside that you conquer and you see this, not a Canaanite woman, Canaanite woman in chapter 20, verse 15 had already been, he had already been told, Hey, this has got to be in regard to those cities outside, outside of where the Canaanite uh, people are. But if you see a woman and you want her, you'll marry her. She'll become your wife. She has value to God. She has dignity, and you're going to treat her with such. So he says, bring her home. Now, this is not the idea of dignity. I, somebody's saying, hmm, so shave her head and trim her nails. The concept was uh, similar to what would happen in regard to a Nazarite vow. If you're changing, in order for her to come with you, she's, she's becoming uh, an Israelite. She's becoming a Jew. She's accepting uh, your spirituality, your understanding of God, your religion, all those things. And when it would begin, it would always begin like shaving off all your hair. Why? Because it's a new start. It's a new start. So this was symbolizing that new start. It was symbolizing stepping out of slavery. Because as a conquered people, she, she was considered a slave. So in verse 13, she'll put off the clothes of her captivity... And remain in your house and mourn her father and mother for a full month. For a full month. So nothing happens immediately. She comes in. She's going to She's gonna go to a, a shave her head, change her clothes, trim her nails, and be in mourning for a month. Because she's kind of been through a difficult time, right? I mean, her people were just conquered. People she knew died. And God says, hey, the the traditional length of mourning was a month. So you're going to set her aside, and you're going to give her that time for mourning. You're going to give her the opportunity to mourn. And after that was over, he said, then after that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But that was the only way any type of sexual relationship would be able to occur. The soldiers in the nation of Israel were not allowed to rape, pillage, and murder. If they saw someone and they desired them, then they married them. And they gave them a fresh start and a new beginning. And they gave them the opportunity to, to mourn within their home before all of this would take place. Just do a, a quick study on the difference between that and the Assyrians. Because the Assyrians, when they conquered you, would put hooks through you and drag you naked back to their city, Nineveh being the capital. Bring you into the city and then slaughter you there before gladiators or wild beasts or just cut you down in the street. You had no value to them. You were conquered. What they wanted, they took. But then the children of Israel, it's a much different concept. What's the, what's the point? What's the difference? What's the thing that, that God is, is laying out for them? Listen, he, he wants to preserve and protect the dignity of the woman and the purity of the man. Stay focused on me. Remember why you're here. Remember what you're doing. In verse 14, He says, Then it shall be if you have no delight in her, then you will set her free. But you certainly shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her br- brutally. Because you have humbled her now that concept that you have no delight in her basically is saying that she is unable to make the transition to this new spiritual understanding of God. If that happens, set her free, but you don't sell her. You humbled her you you treat her with dignity you, you, you can cut her loose. she could have a a writ of divorce if you will in that time, but the idea is to protect her dignity, not to, to devalue her in any way. He goes on again in verse 15. If a man has two wives, notice it says if, it doesn't say thou shalt. You're not gonna say, I don't even know what people are thinking sometimes, but um, <clears throat> the Bible never anywhere teaches polygamy. The Bible in many places teaches the exact opposite, especially in the beginning in the book of Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. One. Singular. And the two shall become one. Not and then the three and the four and the five. In Deuteronomy, we've already read, the Lord's command to the kings, when you have a king in your land, tell him, do not multiply wives. Where they will turn your heart away from God. So we see that. What do we see in the New Testament? Everywhere in the New Testament it talks about a bishop or an elder. He is the husband of one wife. The Bible also understands that in the progressive revelation of God, multiple wives was a common thing. In fact, people in the Bible have multiple wives, right? Abraham had multiple wives. Jacob had multiple wives, but was that, was that God's command to them? Did God say, go have multiple wives? No. So th- by having multiple wives, they're stepping outside of God's perfect plan. God's perfect design for a husband and a wife. But it doesn't stop the Lord from working in their life. And it doesn't stop him from caring about that relationship. And this is what we see in verse 15. God says, listen, uh, this is what I want you to understand. If you choose to have two wives, well, what's going to happen? One will be loved and the other will be unloved. We ever see that in the Bible? Who did Jacob love? Rachel. Who uh, did he not love? Leah. And who gave birth first? Leah. Right? Right? The Bible says God looked down and saw that she was unloved and opened her womb. God cared about what was going on, what was in that situation. He cared about the woman who was not loved. And here he says in the law, And they, the unloved, have born him children, both the loved and the unloved. And if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. He had to honor the firstborn. Firstborn got double. The the man would take his inheritance, and depending on how many male children he had, He would divide that inheritance. In this case, if there were two, it would be divided into thirds. Two thirds go to the firstborn, double portion. One third then goes to the other son. If he has 10 or 12, whatever it is, the firstborn, everyone gets equal, but the firstborn gets double, a double portion. That's the way the Lord laid it out. And he said, listen, when you come into the land and you you start having multiple wives Don't think I'm not paying attention to how you treat people. Don't think I'm not watching about you burning your true firstborn just because you love this other woman more. Does God keep track of that? Is he paying attention to those things? We know he is in Malachi, don't we? Malachi, he he lays out that that his ears are shut to the cries of the people because of the deception and the way they've treated the wife of their youth. Because of the way they treated the the relationship, God said, I'm I'm not hearing your prayers. Peter told us the same thing in the New Testament. Your prayers are hindered because of the relationship between you and your wife. God says, listen, I care about this. I care about... These personal relationships, how people are treated and the right here, the firstborn, regardless as to whether or not the you love his mama, he's the firstborn. He gets double. It's a pretty big contrast to our world today where nobody really cares whether they have kids or not or where their kids are or if they take care of their kids or if they're a part of their kid's life. Well, it's only based on what a judge tells me, right? If a judge says I have to, then I have to. But otherwise, if I'm not in their life no more, well, you deal with it. That's the world we live in. God says, I see that. And that stains the land. It stains the nation of Israel. stains the United States. It causes grief in God's eyes. It's not okay. It's not okay. And then God lays out to his people, especially as we study through Jeremiah and Isaiah, he says, look, I'm looking around for someone to stand in the gap for the land. And the people say, well, it wasn't me. I didn't leave. I'm here with my kids. Yeah? Good. Daniel is one of two people in the scriptures of whom not one sin is recorded. But when he discovered the sin of his land, of the community, he prayed and came before the Lord in repentance and asked forgiveness. Maybe he wasn't involved at all, but his nation was. And he bore the burden of, of the sin of his nation before the Lord. And I think God wants the same from us, that we would understand the sin of our nation, the reality of, of the world that we live in, the damage that we do, the, the how, how much in opposition <clears throat> to what God says, just, just being good to people, being right. He goes on and says in verse 18, now, <clears throat> if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father. See, it's too bad the kid's already left, huh? Who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them. Then his father and mother will take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the city, to the gate of his city. And they will say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city will stone him to death with stones. So you will put away evil from among you, and all Israel will hear and fear. Now there's a couple things about this you need to understand. There's not very many four and five year olds that are gluttons and drunkards. What the scripture is laying out is is a son within the family who has reached a point of rebellion against his mother and father, against the Lord, against his community, against everything and everyone. And that he's reached this place, and as he's reached this place, his parents have <clears throat> chastened. There has been discipline within the home. It's not just a wild son. It's a son who knew what was right and made a choice to go in outright rebellion to all that they stood about. This is a son who is... Refusing to work, implied in the Hebrew phrase, glutton and a drunkard. Refusing to work. And also, wasteful use of the family and the community's resources. All of these things make this rebellious son a perfect picture of Luke chapter 15. When a son said to his father, I wish you were dead, and I had my inheritance now. And the father gave him that inheritance, and what did he do with it? He spent it on riotous living, frittered it away, partying. What do we call that? The prodigal son, Right? Now, when you hear Jesus tell the story of the prodigal son, as he's telling the story, you should un- anticipate the Jewish car- people that are listening are thinking, now, as soon as they see that son, what's going to happen to him? He should be stoned. He should be stoned for what he's done. But Jesus said when, they, when the father saw him afar off, what did he do? He ran to him. Why did he have to run to him? If the elders of the city see him first, they stone him outside the city. So he ran to him and threw a robe around him. You see the attitude of God in the New Testament, the forgiveness of sins. But here, as we look here in the progressive revelation, as the Lord is dealing with a nation that says, hey, we just want to know the do's and don'ts. How, do we, how can we measure up to, to being like you, Lord? Then the Lord lays out, here's my requirement. This is not talking about a mouthy child or or even a kid in school that's difficult to handle. This rebellion is much greater than that. Much greater. Throughout history of the nation of Israel and all historic writings, you will find absolutely no cases of this ever happening. Some people say that it's because the fear of it being taught to the kids was enough. I don't know. I don't know. I see a lot of mom and dads today whose hearts are broken for rebellious kids. But if you told them, well, you could have your son stoned outside the city wall, not many of them are going to stand up and bring them. I know moms that are so tired of covering for their for their kids who are constantly in and out of jail, that even when they know their son is in trouble and that the law is looking for them, they can still hide in mom's house. That's the way mom and dad love our kids. I always hope for something more. What do we see here? God's requirement. God's requirement. What do we do with sin? Cut it out. If you don't cut it out, it's going to affect everything else, right? That rebellious son will infect everything else. What's different for us today? That that rebellious son is dead and trespasses in sin, right? But God can make him alive. He becomes a new creation. He becomes someone who can be redeemed. Redeemable. That's what we see since the cross of Christ. Prior to the cross of Christ, what do we see? We see here what should have happened to the prodigal son. That he would be stoned and the, that sin, that evil, put away from them. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body will not remain overnight on the tree, but you will surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which your Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Paul uses that phrase, doesn't he? That Jesus Christ became a curse for us in the book of Galatians. He became a curse. He told us in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he who knew no sin became sin. There are people who will come to your door and say Jesus couldn't have been hung on a tree because accursed is him who hung on a tree. But Paul said he became the curse. And he died the price of the curse. Being sinless and perfect, that's why it took. That's why his sacrifice was sufficient. Because he was sinless. And he became that curse. So that you and I could be set free. Here the rule is, now how would they be put to death at this time? It's not specifically talking about a crucifixion. He's talking about someone being stoned. But what he had done was so vile that the people staple his body up in a tree. Hang him up on a wall. That ever happened? You remember King Saul? His son Jonathan? We get an opportunity to go to Israel. We go to a place called Bessian. And Bessian is well known in the scriptures for that very thing. When Saul and Jonathan were killed, their bodies were hung on the wall. Who got them down? David did. You mean the guy that was hunting him for all those years? Yeah, David got him down. Don't leave that body hanging. it Soil's the land. Spoil's the land. Bring him down. Regardless as to whether he's a sinner or a saint. Bring the body down. Don't let it stay up. Don't let it hang. But bring him down. We see the same thing in the life of Christ. Now in chapter 22, he's going to turn his focus and say, Now, here's how you love your neighbor. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You will certainly bring them back to your brother. The idea is that you see something going on, but you don't want to get involved. You know, oh yeah, I seen the Oh, his cows got out again. And it's sitting in the middle of my lawn setting landmines for the children. And eating what's left of my dead grass. says if you see it. Don't just turn away from it. And pretend it's not there. Go take them back. Don't love your neighbor just in word. But in deed also. If you see this. Be a part of it. Be a part of the solution. Listen. If you see him. Lost property. An issue. Don't ignore it. But do unto others. As you would have them do unto you. If your brother is not near you. Or if you do not know him. Then you will bring it to your own house. And it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. And you will restore it to him. So if he's a long ways away. You don't have to to go through the hassle of taking it over to him. You just make sure it's safe. And when he comes looking. Say hey I, I kept him right here for you. Kept him safe. Here you go. Loving your neighbor. He said, you will do the same with his donkey. And so shall you do with his garment. And any lost thing of your brothers. Did you catch that? So you will do with his donkey. Oh, his, his four-wheel drive. <laughs> Just happens to be in my yard. And the keys are in it. Yippee, I got a four-wheel drive now. Lord says, that's your brother's. So you will do with his garment. This shirt or this jacket or this thing that we, that we find. You take care of it for your brother. Or any lost thing, just in case that doesn't cover everything in your mind. Any lost thing of your brother's which he has lost and you have found, you will do likewise. You must not hide yourself. You must not say, it's not my problem. He's your brother. He's your brother. Then in verse 4, he takes a look at emergencies. You will not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You will surely help him lift them up again. Well, I was driving down the road, and I seen somebody with a flat tire and looked like they needed some help. So I ducked. And they saw the truck go by as though nobody was in it. <laughs> I hid myself from them because I didn't want to be hassled. It's an opportunity. And often we don't take the opportunities that God puts in our path. We had this woman at uh, Joshua Springs 100 years ago when I was in Bible college and <clears throat> I had long hair back then. And uh, this lady was crazy. Most insane person I've ever known in my life. She <clears throat> picked up anybody. I mean anybody. For all I know, she helped uh, 20 mass murderers. Single mom. Now listen, I'm not telling you to do this. I'm just saying She picked up anybody, everybody, she talked to them about Jesus, she let them stay in her house, she did the craziest things I had ever seen anybody do, make no sense, and she had a bazillion opportunities to lead people to Christ. Now, for her, I believe that was her call. She knew when she looked over and saw somebody that God wanted her to stop. She would say that all the time. God wants me to stop. Nobody ever hurt her. Nobody ever took advantage of her. Nobody ever robbed from her. As far as I know, she went home to be with the Lord. From a mix-up of of uh, medication, went to the doctor for something. They gave her a medicine that didn't mix with a medicine she was already on, and she went to sleep. Never woke up. She did all that stuff and was never afraid. Because she felt like that was something God was directing her to. Now I don't know. God wants us to go to extremes where we put our kids in harm's way. I think there's a place where we should use wisdom. But I also think there's a lot of times. We look at somebody in need and we say I don't have the time. I got other things to do. I got other places to go. God says here it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity. You see your neighbor's donkey falling over? Don't hide from him. Stop and help him stand it back up. You see a problem? You go and be a part of the solution. Practice brotherly love. Practice it. See what kind of land we live in. Verse 5, he says, And a woman will not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment... For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now he's gonna go into several things from verse five um, all the way through verse twelve that talk about being separate. The the Lord lays out for us that we're not supposed to be like or do the things like everybody else is doing. So the Lord says, Don't do this. Don't do this. I created them male and female. Male and female, he created them. What does that mean? They are different. Different responsibilities. There should be. It's not better. It's different. And that's okay. Somewhere in our country, we got the idea that it should be the same. That it should all be the same. Now, I'm not a proponent that women should get paid less than men. But I think there are jobs a woman has no sense doing. Shouldn't be there. I'm thankful that my mom was never running around in the middle of Afghanistan with an M16. Having to shoot people and live with the reality of taking human life. Because she's my mom. She's supposed to be different. Does that mean my mom couldn't do it? No, my mom could have shot me anytime she wanted to. She's pretty good with a gun. Has nothing to do with that. She has a role in God's plan. Does a man have a role? Sure he does. And he needs to fulfill that role. There's a a difference between men and women. And so God just simply wants us to understand that. Okay, that's what this is about. I'm not going to go crazy and say, uh, men wear Levi's, women can't. If a man has a t-shirt, a woman has to wear a dress. That's the, I don't think that's the point of what he's saying. I think the point is the difference in the sexes should remain a difference. It's not the same, and it never should have been the same, and it, nor should it ever be the same. It should be different. And that's, I think, the point that the Lord's allowing. You Be different than all those other people. You guys think that the way our world is today is, is new? Man, <laughs> come on. This stuff's been around forever. Cross-dressing didn't just happen recently. It's something that's been going on forever. was a big part of pagan worship. Okay, the point being, God's just saying, keep the lines, the lines. It's a difference between men and women. Leave that difference. Maintain that difference. Now, I really like verse 6 and 7 because I don't always agree with Idaho fish and game. But, then you read verse 6 and 7 and I shut up. If a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground, with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you will not take the mother with the young, You will surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Isn't that interesting? He lays out this concept of responsible harvesting or hunting, doesn't he? He says, don't take the mother and the babies. Leave the mother. Take the young Fine, take the young, use that for food. Leave the mother so that she will, so there will be more. If the United States had practiced that, we'd still have buffalo everywhere, wouldn't we? But what do we do? Shot everything and just left it. And God says here, he talks about a little bitty bird. I'm going to guess that he cared about the buffalo too and how we treated the buffalo. He doesn't say don't hunt. He doesn't say don't kill. He doesn't say don't eat. He just says be responsible. So that, listen to what he said, so that you may prolong your days. Hey, there are whole places in the country that used to have an abundance of, of animals that could be hunted, that were hunted to the brink of extinction because they they, they didn't use responsible practices. (laughs) That's all God's saying here. Be responsible in how you harvest animals. Think about what you're doing. So that there may be a continual uh, life, uh, that animal, those animals being around, being apart. God cares about that. He wants us to be responsible in that. It says in verse 8, When you build a new house and you will make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. Now, as much as I would like to say it's the dummy's fault who fell off the roof, God says, put a parapet around. Do what you can do to make your house safe. Don't be negligent in regard to safety of the house. Now, for the nation of Israel, the roof was your backyard, okay? You didn't have a backyard. Still today, you don't have a backyard. If you want to go play, where do you go play? Up on a roof. You want to go do something, have fun? Up on the roof. So the Lord says, make sure that you at least have a general practice of safety. Put a parapet so somebody <clears throat> doesn't just walk right off the edge. They didn't know the edge was there. And, and <clears throat> what the Lord say? Bloodshed's on your house. It's on you. It's on you. Now, do I think in our world today we're a little carried away? Because a guy can come rob my house and go play on my, on my trampoline and break his leg and sue me? I think that's dumb. But God also lays out that there is responsibility. If you're loving your neighbor, take the necessary steps to make sure he can be safe. Verse 9, you will not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. Do not mix. Okay, same thing. Keep the se- things that should be separated, separated. Keep things that are different apart. Let, let them be, don't mix. Don't mix your seed. He's going to say, don't mix your cloth. He's going to say, don't mix the way that you yoke animals. Don't be unequally yoked, right? We've heard that before, haven't we? It's all that same concept. Be ye separate. Be different. Stay different. Bloom where God's planted you. Understand the the roles that the Lord has laid out. Principles here of not being conformed to the image of the world, but what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the mind of Christ dwell richly in you. So, don't mix your seed. Verse 10. Do not plow with an ox and a donkey together. What does that mean? Do not be what? Unequally yoked. Right? Uh, ox and a donkey aren't the same, are they? They don't yoke up very good. I wouldn't think. I wouldn't think that they would match up very good. Beside the fact that a donkey... And an ox, that's unclean and clean together. The ox is clean, the donkey is unclean. The the ox is clean, the donkey is unclean. Being unequally yoked together. Clean with unclean, you know, just just not having that same yoke. Keep things separate. Be separate. Be holy. You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. You will make tassels on the four corners of your clothing with which you cover yourself. The tassel, tassels were reminders to obey God's commandments. Be different from everybody else, right? He's saying maintain your separation. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be like God wants us to be. Does that mean that I cannot wear clothing that's mixed or that I can't have two different seeds together? That's not the point. What's the greater truth that God's saying? Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed into this image. Be conformed into the image of my son. Be separate. Be separate. Keep the differences between you and them. Don't Gray out the lines between believer and unbeliever. Don't gray out the lines between clean and unclean. Keep those lines clear. Keep them clear. Verse 13 now. He says, if any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct, brings a bad name on her, says, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found that she's not a virgin. And the father and the mother of the young woman will take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the, city, elders of the city at the gate. And the young woman's father will save the elders. I gave my daughter to this man his wife, and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin. And yet these are the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they will spread the cloth before the elders of the city. And the elders of that city will take that man and punish him. The word for punish means that he was beaten. And they will fine him 100 shekels of silver. That's 10 years wages. And give them to the father of the young woman because he brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife and he cannot divorce her all his days. God saying, Listen, if this is what's going to happen for the woman who is slandered, who is married, and her husband says, Yeah, she wasn't a virgin, so I'm getting rid of her. And so the father and the mother of the bride would bring the cloth. On the in the hoopah, the wedding would take place within a hoopah. Everybody know what a hoopah is? A hoopah looks like the canopy over a canopy bed. It symbolizes the covering of the Holy Spirit over a relationship. They would be married in that hoopah uh, again that looks like a canopy over a canopy bed. They would be married in that. Then that hoopa would move from there to the bed where they would consummate their marriage, speaking of the covering of God over the consummation of their marriage. And on the bed would be would be laid the cloth, the sheets would be gathered up by the father and mother to prove the virginity of their daughter. And they would take those sheets, they would be marked with blood, and they would say, Look, she was a virgin, he's lying. And they would take that husband out and beat him. So glad for that. <clears throat> I would like to be on that committee. There's a couple of husbands I would like to beat. <clears throat> Anyways, I have to put my flesh back down. <clears throat> I digress. They would beat him and they would charge him 10 years wages that would go to the woman and would go to the father of the family to make sure that she was cared for in case you know he just turns out to be a bigger dirtbag than he is. That's the guarantee uh, that she's going to be okay. And so he would be beaten and she would be taken care of and he would never be able to divorce her. That would mean that she would always have a right. the the wife's rights to the the husband's stuff, the things that he had. Now, verse 20 says, but if the thing is true and evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman, then they will bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of the city will stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you will put away the evil from among you the concept is she's implicating her father in the deception that she she was not a, a virgin and the point is to protect the nation of israel from illegitimacy if a, if the woman came in she was not a virgin she conceives a child if if the man didn't bring up the charges that she wasn't a virgin that's his child whether it's his child or not that's his firstborn he he inherits the land if later on that son is is found to be a Moabite or a Ammonite or an Amorite or some other ite that shouldn't be possessing the land of Israel, it was a real problem for them. So it was a big deal in in their society, and I don't I'm not saying this necessarily to say it was a big problem for them. I'm just saying that's the that's why it was a big deal. That's why it was a it was a big deal to protect them from that. In verse 22 it says, If a man is found lying with a woman, married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so that you shall put away the evil from Israel. This is one of the problems with John chapter 8, right? The woman caught in the act of adultery, brought before the Lord, but where was the guy? They said he was caught in the very act, right? But what did the scripture declare? Both the man and the woman, right? They're guilty both. Not one or the other. Both are guilty. Both were to be stoned. Adultery was a a problem. Once upon a time, it used to actually be a a law in in the state's books. Now nobody cares, right? Now nobody cares, but God cares. He cares. It stains the land. Stains the land. Matters to the Lord. Verse 23, If a young woman who is a virgin and betrothed to a husband, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you will bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you will stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So you will put away the evil from among you. This is a situation where woman may be able to say oh no I I, I didn't consent well the Lord says if you were in the city and this is found out and you didn't cry out then you gave consent and so both would be stoned both would be stoned in that place the Lord says if you had cried out someone would have come to hear you right I mean, if you're supposed to help your neighbor when the donkey falls, then you're definitely going to help when you hear a woman screaming, help, 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 right? That's that concept that the Lord has. So in the city, you would be both guilty. If you cried out, then he's guilty. We, and that would follow in the next section as well. Verse uh, 25. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside, and the man forces and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. <clears throat> you will do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death, for just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so in this matter. She's innocent. For if he found her in the countryside and the betrothed woman cried out, there was no one to save her. So, in the concept within the law, the idea is if you if you did something to to try to stop what was going on, then you weren't guilty. If you didn't, then you were. And in the case in the countryside, the man would be put to death. The woman had no shame. If a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they're found out, then the man who lay with her shall give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver and she will become his wife because he has humbled her. He will not be permitted to divorce her all of his days. Think that stopped premarital sex? That was the rule, right? She's not betrothed. You sleep with her. You're responsible for her for the rest of your life. You will pay five years wages for what you have done to the father, which would become the dowry, the, the bride price, which would be set uh, in, on account for her in case you died and she had no sons, what, what have you, that, to take care of her. And you can never... Ever, ever divorce her for any reason. She was always your wife. Because that's the way God sees it. Right? When we were kids, and we'd talk about going out with girls and going on dates. Occasionally, guys would use a phrase, maybe you've heard it. Did you get a piece? Because that's what you do. Take enough pieces, and what's left? Not much. Hollow, empty people. Our world's full of hollow, empty people. God said, "Listen, if you if you don't do it my way, which is to be to be married, then you pay five years' wages. So you figure that out for today. Fifty shekels of silver. If we said the average wage was." 20000 a year, that's $100,000. You paid $100,000 and you were married forever. That's how God sees it. To, to God, that is as important. He's saying, this is you saying, you will care for her forever. So that's what he lays out in this situation. Have sex. Get married. Pay five years wages to the father. It's a little different than our world, right? It's a little different than our world. Verse 30 says, A man will not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. It's speaking primarily of a stepmom. We see that situation dealt with. In First uh, Corinthians, um, chapter five, and uh, or, or in Second Corinthians as well. Now, when we think about this, I, I just found some some old statistics, twenty years old. So I, can, I cannot imagine what the numbers are today. But as as God speaks in this chapter about a lot about family relationships, husband and wife. What he values, how children, you know, in their relationship with their parents ought to be and these things. It's been said that the most basic form of society is a family. Family serves as a seedbed for virtues. National policies contribute to family instability and breakup. This is the first generation in the nation's history to do worse psychologically, socially, and economically than its parents. This was 1988. This is a report from the National Center for Health Statistics. Post-war generation. 80% grew up in a family with two biological parents who were married to each other. By 1980, less than 50% expect to spend their entire childhood in an intact family. An increasing number of children will experience family breakup two or even three times during a childhood. Empirical evidence demonstrates that children in disrupted families do worse than those of intact families. They are six times more likely to be poor. 22% of one-parent families will experience poverty during childhood for seven years or more. Versus 2% of children in two-parent families. Children of single-parent families were three times more likely to have emotional and behavioral problems. More likely to drop out of high school, get pregnant as teenagers, abuse drugs, or be in trouble with the law. They are also at higher risk for physical and sexual abuse. Less likely to be successful as adults, especially in love and in work. And have a harder time achieving intimacy in a relationship or forming a stable marriage or even holding A steady job from the National Center of Health Statistics in 1988, so 23 years ago. That was the track that we were on. That was the track that we were on. 33% of children born in America today are illegitimate. 22% of white children, 65% of black children. 10% of live births are exposed to illegal drugs in the womb. 70% of all juvenile crimes grew up in a single-parent or no-parent family. Each day in America, there are 2,795 teenage pregnancies. Of those, 1,106 teenage abortions. 4,219 teenagers contract a sexually transmitted disease. Every 64 seconds, a baby is born to a teenage mother. Five minutes later, a baby will have been born to a teenager who already has a child. Ten hours later, 560 babies will have been born to teenagers. Daughters of single parents are 53% more likely to marry as teenagers. 111% more likely to have children as teenagers. 164% more likely to have premarital birth. And 92% more likely to dissolve their own marriages. Every divorce is a death of a small civilization. That's why in Malachi God said, I hate divorce. Well, does that mean we're without hope? No, that's not what the point that the Lord's making. The point that the Lord's making is this is a track we're on. The land is. Soiled and stained by sin. So how does revival happen? When God's people will stand in the gap and pray for the healing of a nation. What's going to change all those statistics? Is it going to be a government? Is it going to be, you know, Republican Congress? Who cares? A Democrat Congress? doesn't matter. You get to elect Obama a hundred times in a row. We won't be better or worse. We're on the same track. I don't care who you put in. We are on a road to destruction apart from spiritual revival in our nation. That's the only thing that stops any of it. Spiritual revival in a nation. Whose responsibility is that? The lost or the saved? If my people who are called by my name, right? What do they have to do? Humble themselves and what? Pray. In Ezekiel, the Lord was bringing judgment. This judgment upon the nation. And as that judgment is on its way to the nation, the Lord pauses and he looks around. And he says, I looked around for anyone who would stand in the gap for the land. And I found none. And judgment came. Judgment is going to come. We've all read the book. We know. But we have a responsibility to the lost. That we aren't harping about the numbers. But are on our knees in prayer for the nation. On our knees in prayer for those teenagers. Even right now who are facing those things. For the single parent families that are here, part of our church, a part of our community, that, that, that will become just a number in a book. But we got 168 hours in a week. Right? How many of them hours are you willing to dedicate to prayer for revival? I got a sheet out on that table. I can tell you, I think we have... Somewhere in the neighborhood of 40 or 50 hours covered out of 168. If my people will what? Humble themselves and pray. But, yeah, yeah. Repentance is involved. Turn, pray, change. Stop saying it's not my problem. I'm okay. My kids are okay. That's that's my neighbor. So I'm just going to hide my eyes from his lost property. That's how God looks around and finds no one standing in the gap. Let's stand in the gap. Hey, we can't on ourselves, I can't do 168 hours, but we can do it together, can't we? Can't we cover every hour of every day praying for revival? Just take a spot. Take a time. Pray. If we all stand together, I guarantee you in this upcoming year you'll see a revival. Amen. And if we don't, we won't. It's that simple. That's all it takes. I might be, might not be able to do anything about the entire country, but I can do something about Buell, Filer, Castle, Ford. I can do something about southern Idaho. It's got to start somewhere, right? It needs to start now. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time. We can come together and open your word. Father, may we never forget that as we look at the book of Deuteronomy, this is the book you quoted when you said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That we would recognize that it is on the pages of Scripture they speak of you, our relationship with you. And even though we don't find ourselves as the the church under the dispensation of the law where where these requirements lay on us. But, the, but the, the message behind them is the same. Be different from the world. Be like Christ. Let your colors be seen. Who are you? Are you a chameleon all during the week? No one knows. But on Sunday you're a Christian. Be real. Be who you are. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and stand with him. Stand with him and pray for our nation. Pray for our country. Pray that God would pour out his spirit. Uh, That the old men would dream dreams and the young men would prophesy and that you would move the power of your spirit in a mighty way among us. That's our desire, Lord. That's our desire. Father, may we just come to you in repentance for our part, like Daniel did. This is my nation. I'm part of the problem. But may I come to you, Lord, in repentance, seeking forgiveness and the outpouring of your spirit upon this nation, that at one time, was called by your name. Lord, we desire for that outpouring once again. A mighty revival. A mighty revival that brings people to a real relationship, not a, not a ritualistic religion but a relationship with you that they seek you on a daily basis and they, and they walk in your precepts and your concepts and they desire to please you and love you with their whole heart, their whole mind, their whole body, their whole soul. That's what we look for, Lord. We pray that you would do a work because revival begins in the house of the Lord. It's got to start with us, and it's got to start in repentance, change of direction, asking forgiveness for not taking seriously our responsibility to pray. Uh, Daniel was so important; he prayed three times a day. They could they could set a law and make sure they catch him in breaking that law because so regular were his prayers. May we. Follow in that example. May we remember that the Lord Jesus would go away and pray. Every morning. Every evening. That he was in constant communion with the Father. May that be our heart. Not hiding our eyes from our responsibility. But looking for our opportunity. To share the love of Christ in the things we do, in the things we say, and in what we pray. God, we just ask that you, Father, would move in us, among us, in a mighty way, Lord God. And we would desire to be set apart for you. To do what you're calling us to do. To be glorified in the call that you have for us, Lord. We... We just desire to honor you in all that we do. Bring that revival, Lord God, as we seek your face day by day. We lay these things out before you, Father, and ask that your spirit would move. In Jesus' name, amen.